for your warm welcome, and it's great to be back this evening for the third of my efforts here over this um, celebration weekend. Uh, I was delighted to hear that um, you've got Jonathan Lamb coming next Sunday, a uh, former colleague of mine. He now works for Keswick, but Jonathan Lamb was the original founder of the Langham Preaching Ministry within Langham Partnership, uh, and I bring you greetings from all our colleagues in Langham Partnership, but it was actually in 2003, which I think was the first year I was here, I think, uh, back then, and Jonathan Lamb was getting the Langham preaching movement started, and uh, so it's great you're having him, and uh, he's, he, he will, I'm sure, encourage and inspire you at the end of, of your week. Also, as I said this morning, greetings from my own home church of All Souls Langham Place in London. The, uh, that's where the name Langham comes from, by the way. It's just a street in London. Uh, when John Stott founded his ministries way back in the 1970s and called it after the street, Langham uh, Partnership. So greetings from them and from us and from my wife and family, and it's great to be with you. I wonder if you could turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. I said this morning that when I was thinking about this fact that you are celebrating uh, 150 years and looking back on God's faithfulness in the past and looking forward and moving forward with God into the future, uh, that I thought of these two occasions in the Scripture when something was celebrated and, in a sense, dedicated again to God. And this morning we were thinking about Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and this evening we come 500 years later, approximately, to the time when Nehemiah had to reestablish the people of God uh, in the land after the exile, uh, a long time later after that temple had been destroyed. So Nehemiah chapter 8, I hope you've got it there in an open Bible or um, in your phone or like Moses on a tablet or whatever you've got it, um, if you could turn to God's Word and let me pray as we consider it. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for this day, and as we've already said and sung, we thank you for what it represents in terms of marking a moment of your faithfulness and a reminder of the important things that you've given to us. And we pray now as we turn to the most important thing, at least in the church's life, the, the Word of God and the presence of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to understand, to be encouraged and challenged from this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So what happens when God's Word and God's people come together in dynamic encounter and engagement with one another. Well, that's what happens in this chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 8. As I said a few moments ago, this, the, the background to this passage is that we're now into the so-called post-exile period of Israel's history. Uh, the people of God have come back from being virtually exterminated when they were carried off into exile in Babylon but they've returned to the land. And in the early part of Nehemiah that we are perhaps more familiar with, we know about how he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem uh, in order to reestablish the people securely in their city and their land. But Nehemiah understood that the people, the people of God in his generation needed more than just material protection and physical security. They also needed spiritual roots and depth and consolidation. And so in this central section of the book, chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's a whole great event of covenant renewal. It's a, sort of a bit like what you're doing here at, uh, at present, you know, sort of renewing the covenant that the founders of the assembly made 150 years ago. 
And so as we read, and I'm going to read it in sections, not the whole chapter at once of chapter 8, look, look for what it teaches us about this dynamic relationship between worship and people that is centered on the written Word of God. And I know that this church has been centered on the written Word of God ever since it was begun. Uh, and uh, over the years I've come and experienced something of that and shared with you on, uh, earlier on in the sort of Tuesday evenings in the Crescent and so on. So there's been a very strong commitment here, I know, to God's Word. So let's be looking at that together. So let me read, well actually, what, let, me, let me give you an idea sort of, of where I'm going to go over these next few minutes. Uh, I want us to see four movements within this chapter, four kind of transitions. And here they are. First of all, what we'll see is that there is simply reading and listening as the Word of God touches their ears, quite literally, and focuses their attention on it. And then secondly, there's teaching and explaining going on here as the Word touches their minds and focuses their understanding. And then we'll see that as the chapter goes on, there's weeping and rejoicing as the Word touches their hearts and moves their emotions. And then at the end of the chapter, we'll see that there's finding and doing as the Word touches their hands and generates obedience to God's Word. So those are the four themes that we're going to be looking at together. So first of all then, there's reading and listening. Let me now read to you Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, basically verses 1 to 6. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and all the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Because Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Did you know that pulpits are biblical? Here's one a high wooden platform so that the word could be heard by the people. And beside him on his right stood Mattatiah and Shemaiah and all those other people. And on his left was Padiah and Mishael and all those others. I'll not read all their names. Uh, they were Levites and they were lined up beside him. And Ezra opened the book and all, well, it was a, a scroll basically, the scrolls of the law. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened the scroll, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So here's reading and listening. As the Word of God touches their ears physically and focuses their attention on it. It's a great scene, isn't it? As I tried to sort of bring it to life in reading it. Here's this huge assembly all the people, and there's this big wooden podium that he stands on, and Ezra reads from the scrolls of what we now call Genesis to Deuteronomy, and he does it for a week, we discover in verse 18. So who is listening to this word of God being read? And did you notice as I read it, there's a very strong emphasis in verses 1 to 3 on all the people, men and women, and everybody who could understand 
which probably means all the children who were, you know, a little bit old enough to, to understand the reading of the law. You see, when God gave his word, he gave it for all his people. And that's what makes the faith of the Bible, you see, quite distinct from so many other religions where all the scriptures and the words and the stuff, it's all in the privilege of the few, the, the priests or the gurus or whatever it is. But God says, no, I want all my people to hear my word. And there's an echo here, actually, of what God told the Israelites to do in Deuteronomy chapter 30, one of the festivals. He said that when the festival comes, gather all the people, not just the Israelites, but also the foreigners, the Levites, everybody, to come and listen to the word of God. And that's something, I think, which is important for us to get hold of, isn't it? It's a bit like in the New Testament, those places in Paul's letters when he assumes that when the word that he's written, the letter is being read out, that there will be husbands and wives there and parents and children and slave owners and slaves, that the whole community of believers will be there listening to the Word of God. That's important for any church, and I'm sure Crescent Church is doing that, making sure that every member of the congregation, at whatever level of understanding they have, is being exposed to listening and hearing the Word of God. And what is it they were listening to? Well, again, I wonder, did you notice as I tried to emphasize it, the double emphasis in verse 1, that it was the book of the law of Moses, he was the human author, which the Lord commanded. You see, here's this dual authorship of the Scripture. There is a human author, it was written by people, and it's the Word of God. So what they're listening to is what God had said. And that's so important, isn't it? We come to our worship, and we want to say things. We want to sing. We want to pray uh, and give our testimony, all the things that we say. But so much more important, isn't it, to hear what God has to say, because God is the God who speaks, and human beings are called from the Garden of Eden. We are summoned to listen to what God has to say, and yet we find that so difficult to do. But there are places in the Bible where it's emphasized. Do you remember Samuel? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, even though he's a little boy. Or Jesus, if anyone has ears to hear, let them listen. Let them hear. This is a vital task of any Christian congregation, and their leaders especially, elders, pastors within the congregation, to make sure that people are paying attention to the Word of God because we're so easily distracted by almost anything else. And yet, surely nothing else is more important in our worship. And all we do in our worship can take the place of the revealed Word of God in Scripture, speaking into our ears and our hearts. And then, finally, in this point, did you notice how they were listening in verses 5 and 6? With reverence, with worship, following the example of Ezra himself. He is reading the law, but the first thing he does is that he praises God, and he, he, he lifts up his voice, as it were, and then the people bow down. So Ezra makes the people aware that when he's reading the Scripture, it's not just any old book. They're actually worshiping the God who gave it. They're not worshiping the book. We're not Bible worshipers, but it is the Bible that exposes us to the Word of God and speaks to us through it. So that's the first thing, and it's really, it's so simple, it would be easy to pass over it uh, and just get into the later parts of the chapter, but I think it's important to see that the writer here gives quite a bit of emphasis to the fact that he wanted to say that the Word of God was being read aloud, people could hear it, and it was there for them to pay attention to with all their hearts and minds. 
So that brings us then to the second point, which is in verses 7 and 8, where we find that there's teaching and explaining going on as the Word now begins to touch their minds and feed their understanding. Here it is. You see verses 7 and 8. The Levites, there they are, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, all those people, the Levites, they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So they must have been moving around among the crowd. They read from the book of the law of God, so presumably Ezra was reading it and they were interpreting it, making it clear, says our NIV, uh, one translation says translating it, and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. You see, the point here is that yes, what they're listening to is the Word of God, but it was also the word of a human author, the words of, of, of Moses. It was actually written in a kind of fairly classical Hebrew that had gone back a few centuries. And in some ways, by this time, these people, these Israelites who had come back from, from exile, were already speaking a form of Hebrew which was closer to Aramaic, which was so listening to the Hebrew Scriptures for some of them would have been a bit like some of us listening to Shakespeare or Chaucer. You know, you, you know it's English, but it's so old that it doesn't always make sense just immediately. And so what's happening here is that these Levites, who were trained to do this, it was their job, they were supposed to be those who were the teachers of the law of God. Uh, that's what God wanted them to be. And in order for God to enable the people to have understanding, Ezra presumably has organized this. So he has actually not just said, I'll read the law and you all just, you know, stand there and listen. No, he seems to have organized something of a kind of systematic program of what we might call theological education by extension. You know, this, this is planned. He will read the law, they will translate it if necessary, and explain it so that the people can understand it. That word explain there in verse 8b is basically the word like exegesis. It's just explaining, expounding the Word of God so that they could understand what they were listening to. It reminds me a bit of that moment, do you remember in the book of Acts, when uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot is reading the scroll of the book of Isaiah, as we call it now. He'd probably spent a year's savings to buy it because they were very expensive. And so here he is, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and Philip comes up alongside, do you remember, and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he has this classic reply, he says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And so Philip explains the word of God, leads him to Jesus in faith, and, how, and then baptizes him and sends him on his way rejoicing. So that's what's happening here. These Levites are simply explaining and teaching what the text said. They weren't telling stories of their own, they weren't sharing their own opinions. They weren't telling their great testimony of what God had done for them when they were all in exile. They were simply explaining the text of the Scripture. And there's something so fundamental about that, that the people now understood what God was saying to them through words which had originally been spoken through Moses, but were now being spoken as the Word of God through the explanatory, teaching, preaching, expository work of these Levites. And that's what God wants to happen in His people. And then there's one other moment which actually comes not in verses 7 and 8, but in verse 13, where we read that this goes a little bit further, that on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. 
So this seems to be, a, again, probably a planned thing, that as well as the Levites doing a general kind of explanation to all the people, there was something specifically that every family head, the senior leader of all the families, should gather together, understand and learn the Scriptures, and then presumably pass it on and teach it to their family which, of course, is what God had told them to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Teach these things to your children. Don't let what your eyes have seen and what your ears have heard disappear, but teach it, pass it on. It reminds me again, if we build this into a New Testament context, this is exactly, isn't it, what Paul told Timothy to do when he said, look, what you, Timothy, have heard from me, you entrust to other faithful people who will be able to pass it on to others further. So there's this cascading teaching of the people. And can you see the end result of it all? In verse 12, I love this verse, it says, Then all the people celebrated with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. As Ian said, I was once a teacher. Um, well, I've sort of always been a teacher most of my life, but I was once a school teacher um, in Grosvenor High School. And how you know you're a teacher in some ways is if you really get joy when you see somebody understanding something you're trying to explain to them, even though it's Latin or Greek or whatever it was I was teaching. And you see the lights go on in some, some kids' eyes, and they get it. And, and there's an excitement about learning something, about understanding something for the first time. Uh, and so these people, they are rejoicing because they understand the Scriptures. And again, you know, I find as, as, you know, all through my life, that's mostly what I've been doing is one way and another, preaching and teaching the Bible. And so often what people will say to you after is, you know, I never knew that was there. So good to hear that. Now I understand it. I get it. I see what that passage is about. And so I would encourage you as a congregation and as a church that if you want joy to be part of the sort of mark with the distinguishing feature of Crescent Church, then keep on explaining the Scriptures so that people understand them and rejoice in them and are blessed by them. And that, of course, has always been the great uh, goal of the Langham Partnership, as founded by John Stott, is precisely to train and equip people to do this, to be explainers and teachers and preachers of the Word of God. So that's the second thing we can see in this passage. First of all, there was reading and listening, straightforward. Then secondly, there's teaching and explaining. And now thirdly, there's weeping and rejoicing, as the Word obviously touches their hearts and stirs their emotions. We find an emotional response to God's Word here. You see what it says in verses 9 to 12? Then Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, look, this day is holy to the Lord your God, so do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared because this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they were understanding the words. So there's weeping in verse 9 and rejoicing in verses 10 to 12. Why were they weeping? 
Well, sometimes we weep for joy, don't we, when something is just so overcoming, maybe just listening to God's Word again. But I think more likely it's because the Word of God was touching their consciences. That as they heard those great passages from Genesis and Exodus, Deuteronomy, and those great wonderful passages, that they were convicted of their failure and their sin and their disobedience to God, which, of course, had been the reason why they'd been sent into exile in the first place. So there's a weeping here and a mourning when they're confronted with the Word of God in their hearts and their consciences. And that is always an authentic response to real, true preaching of God's Word, that it stirs conviction of sin and grief and sorrow because of how far short we fall of what God requires of us. But of course, it could only have that effect if they understood it. In other words, this emotional response was an emotional response that was the result of their understanding. It was because they knew what God was saying that they realized how far short they had fallen. So this is a good and proper response to God's Word. It's not because uh, the, the, the Levites were, wait, you know, stirring up emotion and all that. They were simply explaining the Scriptures. And as they explained the Scriptures, it went into people's hearts, cut them to the heart, and they wept. But then you notice in verses 10 to 12 that Ezra and Nehemiah didn't stifle that emotion. Uh, they transformed it from grief into rejoicing. In a sense, they, they, they turned the dial. They, they didn't sort of say, no, 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 let's not have any of this emotional stuff, you know, or that. No, they, they said, don't weep, but rejoice, celebrate. Helping the people to realize that what they were hearing, yes, it was the Word of God, and it convicted them of their sin, but it was also the Word of their God who was the Lord God, the gracious God, the God of mercy, the covenant Lord, and that the law was a gift of God's grace to them, the God who had redeemed them out of Israel, first at the Exodus and now back from, from, from exile. And so the joy of the Lord, says Nehemiah, is your strength, your protection would perhaps be a better translation of the word he uses, that rejoicing in God as Savior is the right response to having weeping as God the judge before whom we have sinned. So when you know you've failed and broken God's law, where do you go? You go back to God. And in our case, of course, you go back to the cross of Christ where we find again forgiveness. So they wept when they understood God's law, but they rejoiced when they were told about God's grace and about God's joy. So we need to preach and teach God's word in a congregation like this in such a way that people weep because of their sins, but rejoice because of God's salvation. Isn't that the gospel? That's really what's happening here in this chapter. And, and notice just a couple of other things. First of all, that there's no contradiction here between emotions and, and understanding. You know, unfortunately, there are, there are, you, you get sort of divisions within different Christian temperaments that somehow it goes one way or another. And some Christian worship is, you know, it's all froth and emotion, but there's no real teaching. There's nothing you can get your teeth into. And there's other kind of Christian worship which is all teaching, but there's no heart. It's just as dry as dust, and there's nothing really to move your emotions. But what we read here is that they celebrated with emotion because they understood. So the mind and the heart, the head and the emotions are going together. 
And also you notice that this joy and celebration is socially inclusive. Uh, verses 10 and 12, twice they're told that when they're doing all this partying stuff and having all this food and drink, don't neglect those who don't have any to share. Make sure that you include the, those who are landless or familyless so that they are brought in. So that biblical worship can never be just self-indulgent, but needs to be bringing people together. So that's the third, reading and listening, teaching and explaining, weeping and rejoicing. And finally, there's finding and doing. Let's look at verses 14 to 18. Well, from verse 13 to 18, the last section of the chapter. On the second day of the month, then the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law, they found it there because they were paying attention to it, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters, booths, during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it through their towns in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive trees and wild olive trees and from myrtle and palms and shade trees to make these temporary shelters, these booths, as it is written. And if you want to see where it's written, it's in Leviticus chapter 23. So the people went out and basically did that. They brought back branches, built themselves temporary roofs on their sh sh shelters on their roofs and in their courtyards in the Watergate, and the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days. And so, in other words, they celebrated the feast of booths or shelters. And from the day of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. And then day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of God, and they celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with regulation, there was an assembly. So, what do we see here? They meet together again to give attention to the Word of God, and I love that. When people gathered together, they gathered intentionally. They had a purposefulness about their worship. They wanted to find out what it said. And what also, they wanted to find out what it said so that they could do it. So you see, what's happening here is this dynamic transition that what they heard in their ears, they now understood in their minds. And what they understood in their heads, they have responded to with their hearts and their emotions. And what they have responded to with their emotions, they're now obeying with their hands. You see, heads and hearts and hands in response to the Word of God. It's a marvelous picture, really, of a community at worship, but a community acting upon the Word of God. Now, as I said, uh, what they were doing was basically uh, doing what it says in Leviticus 23. Maybe that's what they'd got to in the reading. You know, and it says on the seventh day of the month, hey, you know, what time is it, what day? And somebody thought, that's where we are. This is the seventh month, that's the day it says. It says here, this is what we should do. And they say, okay, let's go and do it. So my point is not really what they did. It was the Feast of Booths that was originally celebrating the Exodus and the wilderness experience when the Israelites had to live in temporary accommodation, as it were. Now it's being used to celebrate the return from exile. But my point is not the precise actions that they did, but simply the fact that they were determined to obey the law of God when they saw what it said. 
Once they understood that this is what God's word says we should do, they said, okay, let's go do it. There's something about that simplicity of obedience to God's word which is built in here, finding and doing. And again, you'd want to say that that always ought to be the impact of when a congregation meets around the Word of God. That when there's this desire to find what God's Word says, there should always be this question in the back of the mind, which is, well, what must I then do? How then should I live? What should be the response of my life to having heard something of the Word of God? in the light of it being preached or studied or in a Bible study or a group or whatever it is, that the Word of God is there not just to be heard and to be understood, but ultimately to be obeyed. And did you notice that that comes again in verse 17, this joy word? There's renewed joy in verse 17. In fact, they say, the text says, they hadn't had so much fun for a thousand years. That's basically what it says. Because they said they hadn't celebrated like this since the days of Joshua. And that goes a long way back. And so here they are obeying God's word, and their celebration and their joy was very great. So do you see these two occasions when joy comes in this chapter? In verse 12, they have joy because they understood the words that God had spoken and in verse 17, they had great joy because they were obeying the Word of God. And I would say that that is a recipe for any church that wants to have any sort of joy that is truly biblical joy, that it comes from people beginning to understand the Word of God and then people who are committed to go out and obey the Word of God into the world outside. And that, I hope, will then be a mark of, of, of Crescent Church it has been, hasn't it? I mean, we were hearing that story in the video uh, last night uh, of a tiny little group of people who decide to meet together to study God's Word, to break bread together, and then to think how they can go out into Belfast and evangelize those who did not yet know the Lord, and how that's grown over the years, and how that commitment to be a community of people gathering around the Word and around the Lord's table, uh, and then going out and sharing that with others. And really, there's there's nothing complicated about that, is there? It's simply what the Bible says. That's what happens when God's Word and God's people come together and encounter it with joy, with understanding, with teaching, and then with obedience. And my prayer is that that will always be a mark of this church, uh, even if it has another 150 years, who knows, uh, that it will be celebrated in the same way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these great moments in the Bible story when we read of an event which, well, happened, I don't know, two and a half thousand years ago and yet still speaks to us today, speaks to us because this was your word and these were your people and this story is part of our story. And so we pray that the example that the chapter gives us and its encouragement and inspiration will continue to characterize this community of your people here in this church, this assembly, that it may be deeply committed to the reading and the teaching and the understanding and the obeying of your word. We ask it for your namesake and for your glory. Amen.
es 